Good morning, everyone. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. This year, to this point, we have spent more time doing uh, topical series and topical sermons than we normally do. And uh, so we are going to jump back in and start and finish the book of James. And Not today. <laughs> Don't be afraid. I've done that before and it scares people, I think. <laughs> We're going to start James today and then we'll carry on for uh, until about uh, Thanksgiving. And so that's what we're looking at there. We will be in the book of James. So for your own devotions, uh, for your own reading, maybe uh, on your own or as a family, it would be a good idea to spend a lot of extra time in James, a lot of time in James. That way you'll uh, get a feel for the book. You'll get a feel for James, where the book is headed and kind of what the background is. And, and it'll start becoming a more and more of a topic of conversation. And as we will learn today, that is a very good topic for our conversation is the book of James. So if you would uh, look to James chapter 1 and verse 1, today we're going to be covering verses 1 through 8, as well as introducing the whole book. And so uh, let me read for us the first couple of paragraphs there. James 1, 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not Suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask for his blessing on our time. Lord, we come now before you with uh, your word opened in our hands and in our minds. We ask that you would work in us this morning. We ask that you would take your word inspired by your Holy Spirit and written by your servant, James, that you would take that word and bring it into our day, into our lives, that we would be able to understand what was intended and understand what is intended by you now for our lives. We ask for your blessing and we ask for your guidance. We ask for your spirit to work in our midst, both in, in my speaking and in all of our hearing. We pray that you would be lifted up, that you would be glorified, and that you would do your great work, even in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we have an upcoming election. You probably were aware of that. Can't hardly get away from it, right? And anyone who reads the news, watches the news, or hears about the news is pretty aware of uh, the circumstances we find ourselves in in this culture. And it really seems like every indicator points to the church coming upon a time of trial and testing. What exactly that might look like, I don't know. How exactly long it might last, I don't know. But it seems like that is the direction we're headed. We see uh, social and cultural downward spiral all around us. Uh, there's a movement away from Christian beliefs in our culture, in society. We see political hostility to Christianity, to Christian beliefs, to Christian values, Christian teaching. 
We see a lot of hostility politically. We see violent religious hostility to Christianity, particularly coming from Islam right now. We see bad things happen. We see, uh, we see Christianity is under attack in all manner of ways, and it sure seems like the church is entering a time of testing, and it could last a long time. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I'm not saying it will last. I'm just saying I don't know. But I see it coming. Times of trial for the church. And so, how do we deal with that? How do we, as the Christian church, deal with those times of trying, those times of testing? How shall we behave in the midst of that? How shall we treat one another in the midst of that? And how shall we think about God when we are put to that kind of test? Well, those are the questions that we're going to get answered in the book of James. We're going to see that that is a very similar context to the one James was writing to. And we will see that um, there is a lot of information in here, a lot of direction, a lot of clarity given, a lot of instruction, even rebuke for us about how to live our lives and how to proceed as a church and as the Christian church, broadly speaking, in such a world. And so to that end, we turn to the book of James and, and we're going to introduce it. And uh, you'll see there in point one, we're introducing James, looking at verse uh, one of chapter one, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. So we want to look at a couple of things right off the bat. We want to look at the author. We want to look at the date and we want to look at the recipients. Anytime you're reading a book of the Bible and you can get a feel for those sorts of things, it will help you understand and interpret what's going on in the book. And so, first of all, we want to talk about the author. He just introduces himself as James. Well, there were a couple of Jameses in the New Testament. There are several, actually. And actually, two of them were apostles. And this isn't one of them. <laughs> if, if, uh, whenever Paul writes, right, he always says Paul, an apostle, right? He wants people to be clear that he's an apostle, you know, Peter does the same thing. Like they, they have, uh, they, they kind of attach that title to what they're doing. And what does James attach? He only attaches servant. I'm a servant. And so he almost leaves himself anonymous unless he's a very well-known James. And you would think the two apostles would be the best-known James, but they weren't. The best-known James in the New Testament is James, the brother of the Lord, who wasn't a believer during Jesus' lifetime, but ended up being the head of the church in Jerusalem. And so he became a believer. We don't know exactly when, but he came, became a believer uh, sometime between when Jesus was crucified and, uh, and then early in the book of Acts, we start seeing James as a leader of the church there in Jerusalem. And, and so um, that's who we think this is. He's the only one famous enough who could say, hi, this is James the servant of the Lord. And everyone would be, oh yeah, I know who that is, right? Didn't say James, the son of Alphaeus, you know, or James, the brother of John. That would have worked out pretty well too, but it wasn't one of those. It was James, the Lord's brother. And so um, he became a leader in the, the church in Jerusalem early on. If you remember in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council that happened, you remember there were some, some Jewish Christians who were bringing in some teaching and there was kind of a confusion about uh, what do Gentile believers have to do in order to enter the church? Do they become Jews first and then they beca can become Christians or is there some other way? And so in Acts chapter 15, you see this council called together and they discuss with one another and decide what shall we do with all of these Gentile believers? Do they need to become Jews first or not? Well, James is the one who presided over that. 
He was the James who was leading the church there in Acts chapter 15. So he presided over that. And that took place in about A.D. 47 or 48. All right. So why does that matter? You know, I'm not really good with dates. They don't stick with me too much. But A.D. 47 or 48, that's very early in the first century. Right. And if you think Jesus was crucified about 30 and this is 47, this is pretty close afterwards. We're talking 17, 18 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. And so this is very early in the life of the church. And not only is it very early in the life of the church, it's very early in the writing of the New Testament. So even though in our Bibles it comes kind of towards the end and you might get the idea that this is later on, this is a very early book. And so uh, what kind of date do we have here? Well, it was most likely it was written before the Jerusalem Council. Because of the way he deals with some issues uh, regarding justification and faith and works, etc., it seems like in that very famous passage there in, uh, in James chapter 2, the latter half of James chapter 2, where he's talking about justification and works and faith, it seems like he's not familiar really with the argument that's already been started that Paul has been writing a lot about in Romans and elsewhere, right? And so it seems like he, he's not familiar with that conversation, and he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. That conversation, therefore, hadn't really happened yet. So, uh, and, and that conversation is kind of what was brought up in the Jerusalem Council. So it seems like the book was written maybe in the mid-40s, right? So here we're talking 15 years after Jesus was crucified. We already have a book of the New Testament written and written by James, right? And here this is James, the Lord's brother. And this, this kind of strikes me because here he grew up with Jesus, right? He's Jesus' little brother, and uh, he grew up with him. And can you imagine? Look what he says here in James chapter 1. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, you know, the brother of the Lord. Other people call him James, the brother of the Lord. But he just says, I'm a servant of Jesus. And that always strikes me because Jesus is his big brother. Realistically. You know, they wrestled in the kitchen floor. <laughs> you know, and he says, I'm a servant of Jesus. So that kind of strikes me about uh, James' humility and about how he really understood his position, that his, his position and his, um, his life was not most closely tied to the fact that he looked like Jesus because they were brothers, but the fact that he was a servant of the Lord. And that's where he got his identity. Well, who are the recipients? And this is an important, a very important uh, point here. You see it says, "...to the twelve tribes in the dispersion." Well, 12 tribes makes you think right off the bat of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So Jews, he's writing mostly to Jews. And if you think about your New Testament history, the church started out entirely as Jewish. Acts chapter 2, they're Jewish. And then over time, you start seeing Gentiles being folded in, right? So over time, the church becomes less Jewish and more Gentile, but we're still very early in the history of the church. So it would have been mostly Jewish. And he says the 12 tribes, which kind of lines up with that. And then he says in the dispersion or in the diaspora, those who were scattered abroad, some of your versions say, those who were scattered abroad. Well, he's not writing primarily to, you know, the, the Levites who were scattered abroad or, you know, the, the tribe of Dan who had been scattered or whatever. He's not writing primarily in those terms. He's thinking in Jewish terms. And so he says the 12 tribes, but he's talking about the entirety of the church and they'd been scattered well, when in the New Testament had the church been scattered? If you think through the book of Acts, you remember about the stoning of Stephen, right? Early on, if you, if you keep your finger there in James and flip backwards to, flip backwards, <laughs> in your Bible to Acts chapter 8, 
So page 916, by the way, if you're using a pew Bible in front of you, it's page 916. If you flip back to there. So chapter 7 is the stoning of Stephen, right? So here we have a martyr, the first Christian martyr, and it's a big, big deal. And so until that point, the Christians had been hanging out in and around Jerusalem, right? They had been right there, and that's where the church was growing. And all of a sudden, in Acts chapter 7, you have Stephen being stoned. And then look at this in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Right? So there begins a scattering. Right? So the church scatters all over the place, and they scatter here, and they actually scatter beyond just this area. As time goes on, they keep kind of scattering. And so when James writes and says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion or in the diaspora or to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad, it seems like this is what he's talking about. The, the church that has been scattered because of the persecution that has arisen uh, and started with the stoning of Stephen. And so that's the group you have that he's writing to. And if you think about it, James had been the pastor of this church. He'd been the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so here he is, the leader of the church, and then because of the, uh, because of the persecution, because of the stoning of Stephen, they're scattered. And so here he's a pastor writing to his congregants, essentially, the people in his church that he knows and loves. He used to be their pastor, and now they're scattered, and so he has a great care for them. And so he writes to them and, and writes to them in their various situations. And so uh, it kind of gives a personal feel to the book kind of gives a pastoral feel to the book that might not otherwise be there if, uh, if you didn't think in those terms. And, and so that's the, uh, the author, the date, the recipients. Well, let's move on to the context. What's the context of the book itself? Well, you can see from right off the bat, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, in verse 2, when you meet trials of various kinds. When you meet trials of various kinds. And, and if you think about it, these people had been run out of town because they're Christians. Persecution had kicked up and Stephen had been stoned. Stephen, one of their, you know, very visible and powerful leaders, a very godly man, beloved by all, was stoned. And so they all, they took off, right? And they scattered and, and they move into new areas. And when they do that, when you, you know, when you run out of town, you're going to find some hardships. You went from a place where you had your church body, for example. You went from your familiar town, your hometown, and your job, and your business, and your house, and you left. And you left all that stuff, and you find yourself alone. Or maybe a couple of Christians around you, but you don't have your home church. You've left your house, and so who knows where you're living. You've left your hometown, your job, you know, your business, you've left all that kind of stuff. And so you find yourself on financial hard times. So not only that, but you left Jerusalem because you were a Christian and persecution was starting. And now you've shown up in the next town or wherever you ended up. And why are you guys here? Well, because we're Christians and, and they hated us in Jerusalem. Well, you know, you might bring some persecution along with you by, by showing up in the new town and that kind of situation. And so that's kind of the context of what's going on. And you, you might be surprised how long I spent trying to figure out what all their trials were. And then I read there and it says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And okay, well, so I don't have to identify them all because James says they're various kinds of trials. And so, but you can imagine the situation they found themselves in. It would have been difficult. They're sojourners again. They're like Abraham wandering around except without the money, right? They're sojourners. 
difficult. And that's sort of the context that they find themselves in. They're in a foreign land. Their church isn't really there with them anymore. Their job isn't really there. They're trying to get by. So that's the context. Well, so in that kind of a context, let's move on to the content. And I kind of want to give an overview of James. By the way, it's, it's difficult to outline James. Some books of the Bible just fall very neatly into an outline, and, uh, and that's great, and you, you're kind of happy because you can sort of remember the outline. James is not one of those. James kind of jumps from topic to topic to topic, and then back to the first topic, and uh, it's a little bit difficult to outline. But if you think about the context these people were in and the pressure, the trials they were undergoing, the things, the hardships that they were facing and whatnot, you can see that those trials affected them in certain ways, and James was writing to address those ways. So, for example, uh, when they were under trial, they were under difficulty and hardship, they were, they were tempted to, to sinful or worldly behavior. James talks about that. And James says uh, in verse, uh, chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So he addresses their situation there because they were tempted to sin. They were tempted to become worldly in their behavior because, by the way, that kind of makes persecution lessen a little bit because you stop looking so much like the church. And so they were tempted to do that. And he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or maybe because of this situation, they were tempted to be angry with God. Or maybe they were just tempted to be angry with one another. And to that, James says in 120, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Don't operate out of anger. Or maybe they were tempted because they were living in this new town and they were maybe poor, they were in a different, you know, difficult financial situation. They were tempted to be partial to certain people who might be able to help them, right? And there's this whole description of, you know, when a rich guy walks in the door and you give him the finest seat and, and you know, a poor guy walks in the door and you make him sit at your feet or kind of over in the corner. And so they were tempted to partiality to certain kinds of people, maybe those who could help them or something. And James says in two nine, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Don't show partiality. Or maybe they were tempted to hypocrisy. They were tempted to think <clears throat> that the faith is really just what I think. It doesn't have to show itself in my outward behavior. It's, it's, it's what I think primarily, right? And, and so it doesn't really matter the way I the way I live or the works that I do. And so James says in that very famous passage in 2.26, faith apart from works is dead. It's not just what you think. <clears throat> Maybe they were tempted to harsh and sinful speech with one another because they're under pressure and they're getting bitter. James says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Chapter 1, verse 26. They were tempted under this time of pressure and trial. They were tempted to seek wisdom from the world. Try and find other ways to help themselves out. Because this is difficult times. The church isn't really working. Maybe I could get wisdom from somewhere else because they tend to know more out there. They've, they've done their research out there. Maybe these professionals, these secular professionals or whatever can help me more. And so they were tempted to seek wisdom from the world. And this is what James says to that in chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. Maybe they were just tempted to be impatient. Enough of this trial already. 
This has gone on long enough. I've lived outside of my hometown long enough. I've been kicked away from my church long enough. I've been suffering financially because of this or suffering relationally or in other ways. Maybe I'm undergoing persecution. I'm tired of this already. And they were impatient to get it over with. James says in chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Wait, how long? Be patient how long? Until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so James addresses those and and other types of issues. And, And so we get a very practical book. I used to call James the Nike book. Because just do it, you know, James, James doesn't give a whole lot of theology, just do it, okay? He just tells you what to do, and, and so that's why it's so practical. He's writing to this situation, he understands their situation, and he wants to help them deal with this, uh, this trial, this pressure, this stress, this strain that they're under, the testing of their faith, that they would deal with it in a proper way. And so I find that to be practical for us. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what things will look like when society continues. We don't know what things will look like after the election. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the next step for ISIS is or the growth of Islam. or We don't know. But it seems like trial and testing is coming. And so James has great, great wisdom for us. And so our desire in looking at the book of James is that we would learn these lessons preemptively that we would learn how to behave very practically in these kind of situations so that we, as a church, now would know how to proceed through this trial and testing of our faith. And so we look at, uh, at, at James chapter 1 and move on to point number 2, considering trials. He starts right off the bat there in verses 2 through 4. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. First of all, he talks about a proper perspective, a proper perspective. Another way to think about it, he tells us something to think, something to think. He makes a very radical statement. Count it joy when you meet trials. That's a little counterintuitive. Count it joy when you meet these trials. When you encounter a test, place it in the joy column. How do you think about a test? Well, you think about it as a joy. It's not a natural idea. This is counterintuitive. This isn't probably the way uh, most people live their lives, is my guess. But Christians' faith and heart are not to be governed by circumstances. Did you know that? Our faith and our heart attitude is not to be governed by our circumstances. The world around us does that. Circumstances decide for people what they're going to do, whether they're going to get angry, whether they're going to be happy, whether they're going to make this decision or that decision or blow up in this way or implode in that way. Their circumstances around them determine that. And that is not the way it is to be for Christians. We are not governed by our circumstances. He says, count it joy when you meet trials. Now, he's not saying that trials are fun. 
He's not saying that. We know that's not true. He's not saying that trials are easy to go through. He's not saying that. He knows that not to be true. What he is saying is that Christians are to rejoice even in their sufferings and in their hardships. To rejoice. Now, question, how is that not just delusional? (laughs) It seems crazy. And how is James not crazy? Well, look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So this brings us to not only a proper perspective, but a proper understanding. First, he told us something to think, and now he tells us something to know, something to remember, something to remind ourselves of. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So this is the ground for why James is not delusional for saying that we should consider it joy. When we encounter a trial, put it in the joy column. He's not crazy and he doesn't want us to be crazy. Nor is he saying that he just wants us to make the most of tough times. I think we should make the most of tough times. I think that's good advice and that's helpful. And that's not what he's saying. He's not saying make the most of a difficult situation. He's saying God will make the most of that difficult situation. He's saying God, sovereign God, is behind that difficult trying and testing time. And He will work something in you. God is sovereign over the trials in your life. They didn't just happen and then He's scrambling to do the best that He can. He, who's the one who designed you, He's the one who brought this trial into your life. God is that sovereign. He brought this into your life. It's going to be trying. It's going to be testing. It's going to be difficult for you, but it's going to produce fruit in your life. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness or the testing of your faith produces endurance. In the same way that working and challenging and testing muscles makes the muscle stronger, so also times and situations that try our faith make our faith stronger or more steadfast. Each time our faith is tested and we continue to cling to God by His grace. And He shows Himself to be faithful once again. We become more sure of His faithfulness even than we were before that time of trial came up. That prepares us better and better and better to follow God even through difficult times in the future in our lives. We learn steadfastness. We learn endurance. Oftentimes during, during those difficult times when our faith is being put to the test, it can be hard to remember that God is working in us at that time and through that trial to strengthen us and to develop us and to mature us, to grow us in our faith. And so James reminds us, consider it joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, produces steadfastness and so brothers and sisters let's remind one another of that not in a trite way i know it's no fun when you're suffering and someone comes and says count it all joy and you kind of just want to you know count it right joy in their face right but so you got to be you know you got to be sensitive to how you do that but the message is biblical the message is true and by the way it can be received from people who have walked through trials and have had their faith and their endurance matured. When someone comes 
who has endured hardship like that. And they have seen their faith and their endurance grow. When they speak to me in my situation, I nod my head. And I accept that encouragement. I even accept that rebuke. So, brothers and sisters, let's encourage each other. It is tough, tough to remember that. So let's remind each other of that. So he tells us something to think. He tells us something to know. And then thirdly, he tells us something to do. He talks about the proper fruit. The proper fruit. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, stronger faith itself is not the end goal here. The end goal is that we be perfect, that we be complete, that we lack in nothing. So you're asking yourself, what in the world does perfect mean? Because <laughs> I'm not there. What does James mean when he, when he uses uh, the word perfect? And by the way, he uses that word a lot in the book of James. It, it appears again and again, perfect, complete. That same kind of idea uh, appears in there. Well, when James uses it, it usually means something like to, to mature, to be mature, or to be whole and to have all of the parts there and functioning properly. To have nothing missing. And he's talking particularly about character here. He's talking about having everything in place in our character. You've noticed, of course, when difficult times arise, when pressure comes, right? You see the weakness. The the vulnerability is revealed. If I I struggle with anger, you want to see that gap in my character, apply a little pressure, and boom, you will see anger, right? That's because I have a gap. Right. I have a I have a a place there, a weakness. And James is saying that this this process of testing and enduring ultimately fills in those gaps, ultimately builds your character so that there is nothing missing so that the next time pressure is applied, you don't have that same violent uh, explosion of anger or whatever it is. You don't, you don't, you don't run away to bitterness or, or whatever the gap, whatever the, the fault, the flaw in your character is. God is using trials and times of, of difficulty to encourage, to develop, to mature, to grow you, to fill in those areas to where you would, as a result of the time of trials in your life, that you would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Meaning you don't have major gaps in your character. Over time, as you continue to go through trial, as you continue to persevere through tests, you see that your character is being shored up. And you you don't blow up anymore like you used to. You don't get bitter like you used to. You, You trust in the Lord. He is building you. He is producing fruit, proper fruit in your life. This maturing, though, won't happen without anything from us. It doesn't just happen because we go through trials, right? If it, if it just happened as a result purely of me going through the trial, you know, you could like make a list of how many trials it's going to take before you're perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, right? No, he, he says it differently here. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may per- be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let it happen. Cooperate with it. Trust the Lord in the midst of your trial. There are ways to look at your trials that will not bear fruit in your life. Impatience for the trial to be over already is not going to bear fruit in your life. Again and again, James tells us, be patient. Be patient and endure. 
and there will be fruit. Don't be impatient. Doing anything you can do to get out of that trial is not going to help you mature. Maybe your, maybe your trial is a financial one and you figure out a way that you can you know, lie, cheat, or steal and get some extra money. That's not going to mature your character to do that. And that's what James is talking about. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Cooperate with God in the midst of your difficulty. This is a new and different kind of opportunity that bears great fruit when you're going through those trials. They're not fun. But put them in the joy category because God is working in you to develop your character. He's going to bear fruit in your life. So don't waste your trials. Respond in obedience. Respond in faith. Respond with patience. And God will do His work in you to develop your character into that which is pleasing and is useful to Him. Don't waste your trials. Times of trial will come. And you have the option to respond and grow or not and don't. Sometimes it's not clear, though, just how we should respond to trials and tests in this way. And so James gives us this next piece of instruction. Look at uh, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, okay, on this particular issue, how do you go through trials in such a way that you grow and mature and develop and see good things brought about by God in your life? How do you do that? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all and without reproach, and it will be given him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we find ourselves with the need for wisdom. The need for wisdom. How do I go through trials and grow? How do I respond in a godly way in the midst of these difficult times? trying situations and grow takes a lot of wisdom good news is god loves to give that wisdom the word there generously it doesn't really mean like he gives lots and lots of it it's more like the idea of specifically and intentionally god loves to give that wisdom you're asking god how to respond to this difficult situation the pressure the trial this hardship how do you respond God, I want to I obey you in this. And God says, I am so glad you asked. Pow, here you go. And he gives you the wisdom how to walk through that. God will give it. Ask him. He knows where you need to grow. He's the one who sent the trial to bring about growth. When you ask him for help, he will give it. So when you find yourself with the need for wisdom, ask God. And that brings us to the second part here, the assurance of faith. The assurance of faith. Look again at verse 6. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. Ask trusting God. Trusting God. The picture that's going on here between faith and doubting is is an important one for us to remember. He doesn't just mean uh, you're you're asking God for a big thing and you know God can do it, but you're not 100% certain if he will, and so you're asking God with... You know, I don't know if you're going to, you know, give me that thing, God. That's not the kind of doubt that he means. He's talking about doubt like he's like he's uh, like he's talking about it through the rest of the book, which has to do with kind of like trying to play both sides. 
I'm going to ask God because that seems like a good idea. I'm going to hedge my bets. But just in case he doesn't come through, I'm going to go over here and figure out by reading my, you know, horoscope or whatever and get some help over here, right? I'm, I'm going to go to God and trust him because I know that's what I should do. But at the same time, I'm going to figure out some worldly way to solve this problem. If God doesn't come through with this financial thing, I'm going to just lie on my taxes and, and, and fix it that way. You see what I mean? That's the picture in James about what doubt is. It's not just, I'm not real sure if God's going to give me this thing. Yeah, that's doubt, but that's not what he means here. So when he says, ask in faith, he means, ask God only. If God doesn't give it, it ain't coming. That's the kind of faith he's talking about. Leave this business over here of the world and solving it in a worldly way. Leave that alone. Don't go anywhere near it. Ask God and trust God. I'm going through this trial, difficult situation. Lord, how can I honor you in this? I'm going to wait for you, Lord. And I'm not going to go over here and fix it in some worldly way. That's the kind of doubt. And you can see that when he talks about the instability of doubt. The instability of doubt. The second half of 6 on through 8, he says, uh, let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord because he's a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. There's great instability in doubt. And this doesn't, again, just mean I'm not sure if the Lord is going to give me this thing. He means living a life of hedging your bets. I'm going to ask God and I'm going to go over here to the world and we'll see which one works out. It's not the way it works. He says, don't let that guy think he's going to get anything from God because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There's complete instability there. You're trying to, you're trying to, you know, you're, you're afraid to put all your eggs in one basket kind of thing. Put all your eggs in God's basket. All of your eggs. Trust him. That's faith. That's faith. And God honors that. He doesn't want us messing around over here trying to solve the problems our own ways. People he was writing to were doing that. And you saw different kinds of examples. And, they, and, and it showed itself in all manner of ways. They were budding up to the rich guy because they thought maybe they could you know, get a better job and it would kind of help out their financial situation. Yeah, sure, they asked God to help them out financially, but, but they're really trying to solve it over here by, by despising the poor guy because he's not going to help them after all anyway. The rich guy, he can help them. He can probably give them a job or, or maybe even some charity or something. Right? Or by being angry at each other. I think that's James's message for us. We are facing times of trials. And I don't know what they're going to look like. And I don't know how long they're going to be. And nor do you. But in the midst of that, let's put all of our eggs in God's basket. Let's go to Him and look to Him. And let Him work through times of trial and testing in us to produce endurance, steadfastness in us. And then through that perfect our character and fill in our gaps and our weaknesses that we have in our character. Let's let God do that. Let's trust him in that way. And James is going to give us very practical, practical advice on how to do that. That's what I want us to have in mind. And so uh, come to a point of application here. First of all, he, he gave them something to think, right? Well, let's, let's look at uh, what should we think. Are you uh, undergoing trials? I know many of you are undergoing trials. And I know probably there are many of you that I don't even know about your trials. I don't even know about your testing. 
that you're being tried and you're being tested. Is that you? Probably doesn't feel joyous, but are you counting it as joy? Because you know that God is working in you to produce enduring faith in you. That is practical. When you undergo trial, consciously put it in the joy category. Because you know that the sovereign God who loves you is behind it and working in you to strengthen your faith. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. So that's something to think, something to know. First of all, do you know the Lord? Or are you on the outside and suffering, going through trial, but you have no hope in it? Suffering with no purpose. The God of the Bible is working even through trials and tests and difficulties to produce good results in his children. And you can know him too. And he'll take you as his child if you'll leave behind your allegiance to sin and turn entirely to him. And when you do that, you can have the peace of knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that is not available apart from him. There is no hope available apart from him. So something to think, something to know, and then something to do. Are you undergoing trials but still struggling against them? Not allowing those trials to work in your life, endurance and faith and maturity and shoring up your character? Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing a big word in the book of james is patience be patient you're undergoing trial be patient you're tempted to snap at someone else because you're undergoing difficulty be patient be patient god is at work he didn't forget about you he didn't forget about you he is at work Be patient. Even in the midst of that difficult trial, that pain, that pressure that you're undergoing, the testing of your faith, even in the midst of that, be patient. Put all of your eggs in God's basket. And He will work this in your life. That's what He says He'll do. Let's pray. Lord, I put all of my eggs in your basket right now. And I stop trying to find other solutions to deal with difficulties in my life. And I pray that each of us would do that, that we would look to you only, that we would not look to uh, some help from the world, some wisdom from the world, some guidance from the world, but that we would look to you and trust in you and ask you how we can persevere and endure through this difficult time and that you would hear and that you would very specifically and on purpose answer that prayer and give us wisdom that we would know how to walk with you even through difficulty. Lord, I know that there are people in here who are hurting. I can't imagine their pain. I've heard about it and I've seen it, but I can't imagine it. I pray that you would work in them, even in this time of trial. That they would be patient. That they would let the endurance have its full effect. That their character would be shored up, being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
I pray that they would see you as faithful even in the midst of this and that they would find very great joy and even be able to put these times of trial into the joy category by faith because they know you. Work in them, Lord. Work in them and give them peace and give them that completeness and perfection where they lack nothing. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.